Hello, it's David Shirley from Irish Funds. To mark the first ever European Retirement Week in November, the Irish Association of Pension Funds and Irish Funds held a joint webinar with a panel of experts looking at the future of European pensions and how they are tackling sustainability and incorporating stewardship as fiduciary investors on behalf of clients. In this podcast, we are bringing you the audio from this webinar, which was held on the 30th of November. The moderator is Jerry Moriarty from the Irish Association of Pension Funds, and the discussion features Peter Branner from APG, Kathy Ryan from Irish Life, Jim Foley from Trustee Decisions, and the discussion is concluded by Pat Lardner of Irish Funds. I hope you enjoy this episode and check back soon for more great content. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Um, we've just got quite a lot of people joining at the moment, so we will get moving. Um, you're all very welcome to this webinar, which is being jointly organised by the Irish Association of Pension Funds and Irish Funds. Mark the first European pension or European retirement week, which began yesterday. Also, welcome to anyone who wasn't able to join us live but is watching the recording. My name is Jerry Moriarty. I'm CEO of the IPF, and I'm chairing the webinar today. With three panelists, Peter Branner of APG, Kathy Ryan of Irish Life Investment Managers, and Jim Foley of Trustee Decisions. I'll ask each of them to introduce themselves shortly. We're going to have a discussion on the future of European pensions, but with particular focus on sustainable investment. We should have time for questions, so please do use the questions function on your menu, and we'll take those towards the end. And we aim to finish at about 10 to 4. So firstly, welcome to our panelists. Um, can I maybe just ask you to start off to introduce yourselves, a brief overview of how sustainable investment currently fits into your role. Cathy, uh, do you want to go first? Uh, thanks, Jerry. Yes, yeah, so Cathy Ryan, I'm Head of Responsible Investment at Irish Life Investment Managers. Um, sustainability is the is the whole part of my role, really. So uh, that's that's certainly the key. Um, so I have oversight over our solution structures as well as our voting and engagement actions. And uh, I joined Ireland in uh, February 2020, which was very timely. But prior to that, I've been in responsible investment for over 10 years. So working also with other uh, participants such as Aviva Investors and have done work for the World Bank, um, Carbon Tracker, Climate Policy Initiative, and uh, other methodology providers. Great, thanks, Cathy. And Peter? Yeah, thank you, Jerry. My name is Peter Brenner. I am the CEO for APG in the Netherlands, uh, representing uh, a number of large pension funds and their investments, so in total uh, 610 billion euros. Also, uh, Vice Deputy Chair for uh, Pharma, our association in Europe for Asset Managers. And my involvement in the responsible investment area goes across all asset classes. Um, so I chair the investment committee every week. And sustainability is a corner in our investment process and has been since 2015 um, across everything we do. Um, so, yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> okay, and Jim? Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Jim Foley, I'm Managing Director of Trustee Decisions, uh, professional trustee across a range of defined benefit and defined contributions in Ireland, with approximately 12 billion under trusteeship. Um, also director of two funds, yes, so I have a foot in both camps on, the, on this, this uh, webinar, uh, the Irish Property Unit Trust and the Irish Forestry Unit Trust. In terms of sustainability, as a trustee, I see it as part and parcel of the risk management, of trying to get a risk-adjusted return and understanding exactly where the money that we manage as trustees on behalf of our members has ended up 
uh, and the extent to which you know we, we are getting a genuine risk adjusted return and we're aware of the risks that the whole area of sustainability poses to us. Okay, that's great. Thanks, Jim. Um, I suppose to get started, I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of um, focus on sustainable investment in recent times. Um, and obviously, recently, we've just come off COP26 as well. Um, do you think that has helped kind of push the issue forward? And Cathy, do you want to take that first? Yeah, um, great. I certainly, it, it was a very interesting COP. I think it differed very much from, from the last number of COPs we've had since Paris. And I think we had a number of areas where we, pro, you know, we saw, you know, clear progress. Um, certainly, commitments around deforestation, where you know we had 100 countries agreeing to reverse deforestation by 2030. Um, also, commitments around methane reduction. So more than 90 countries uh, agreeing to reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030, and agreeing to phase out coal-fueled power plants, um, as well as agreements in terms of cross-border uh, the cross-border carbon market um, corrections. So I think these are really fundamental changes that, that will help. Um, I also think, I suppose, particularly with regard to the financial sector, I think Finance Day was probably one of the high points. Um, under the Glasgow Financial Alliance, uh, 450 members, you know, as we've heard, equating to approximately 130 trillion, have now agreed to commit to the pathway for, for net zero. And I think that really has been a huge development. Um, additionally, I suppose, to, to strengthen that, we also saw central banks make commitments on how they were going to integrate climate risk into their supervision and monetary action. Um, we also, in order to, I suppose, substantiate that, that uh, oversight, we also saw the International Sustainability Standards Board agree that they would set up a, a non-financial reporting uh, directive in order to pave the way, I suppose, for mandatory sustainability reporting. Um, so I think these are really key changes that happened during COP, and I, and, you know, certainly we have an awful lot more to do. But I think you know the agreement also to revisit targets in one year's time rather than five years' time, which had been agreed, are are, are big steps forward, and it certainly has huge implications for every industry sector and geography, um, including pension funds. But uh, yeah, that would be my take on it. Great, thanks, Caddy. Um, and uh, I think there's a little bit of feedback coming through as we're speaking. So maybe if um, we could mute ourselves when we're not speaking, and then we'll spend the rest of the webinar reminding ourselves to come off mute. So, uh, Peter, what's your kind of perspective on COP and how it feeds through to what you do? Well, I, I think without repeating everything that Cathy said, I, I believe that we had a healthy discussion on countries' ability to, uh, to reduce their uh, uh, sort of uh, Fossil contribution in terms of supporting uh, the elderly with uh, reductions of their their uh, electricity bill, cars, gas bills, etc. But of course, this is a tricky area for them. The other discussion that was taking place was related to carbon tax, which I still think we uh, uh, will have to uh, continue. Uh, but it's good to see that it was on the table. I would have hoped for more. I, I think this is intuitively the only direction we can take. Very happy to see also some of the central banks being very vocal on this. The French one, uh, last one I spoke with about this. So, so I, I think uh, you know the, the tone <laughs> could have been louder. I think we all agree on that. Um, it would have been nice to see more uh, commitments on coal, uh, without mentioning any large countries uh, in Asia. Um, but again, we have to be realistic. Also, this is a very political, sensitive area. So, uh, all in all. Uh, small steps forward. Um, 
And Jim, what's your perspective on COP? I think as a, as a private citizen, I mean, the whole area of environment, climate, net zero, carbon uh, is, is enormously uh, concerning. I think COP made some progress, as Peter said, but you know, it's the classic lots done, but a hell of a lot more to do. But there's a real sense of, of more momentum coming behind it uh, um, and more alignment coming. Um, and some of that is coming through regulation. Some of that is coming through, you know, companies, pension funds, whatever, being forced to do things. But on the same token, I see a lot more actually of people wanting to do things differently, wanting to make a difference, wanting to, to see that their actions actually can contribute to it. Um, but I say I have a difference in my head between as a citizen and as a, as a trustee. Okay, and uh, I think we'll come back to um, some of that later in the conversation. Um, obviously, there's a lot of focus on the kind of path to net zero um, and you know, coming out of COP and before COP as well. Um, I just want to tease out what that means to you, either as an asset owner or asset manager. Um, Peter, do you want to take that one first? Yeah, I think we, uh, of course, on behalf of our clients, we uh, we signed the net zero uh, asset manager um, alignment uh, earlier this year. And also there is a specific uh, signatory here in the Netherlands uh, that we have also signed on behalf of clients to uh, sort of uh, the Dutch climate agreement. So what we're doing now is we're preparing ourselves and our clients to, uh, to actually follow through on that early next year. We have one year to sort of to get that done. And setting the targets, uh, we know them for 2050, we know for 2030, but actually the way towards that. So setting the, the sort of the plan for the following years, uh, 2022, 23, is what we are occupying ourselves with together with clients, so that they can communicate clearly on that next year. Uh, so that's that's what we're doing. Okay, and um, maybe Jim, do you want to talk about net zero, and then we might come back and just talk about you know what what it means in a sort of practical way, and you know what are the the steps you're taking to get there? Yeah, I suppose as a, as a trustee, I mean, trustees are so many steps removed from where their monies are actually invested on behalf of their clients that sometimes it's more difficult as a trustee to see the direct line of sight and see how you can influence it. So to an extent, we are relying on the fund managers. Uh, in terms of their actions and what they do. Uh, and we're also relying on you know, the amount of feedback that we get from those managers. Uh, I often wonder about, you know, yes, we're getting lots of feedback these days in terms of, of all sorts of sustainability reports and net zero reports. We don't often get too much request for feed forward, however, of actually understanding, okay, well, what is it that the fund managers, the asset managers are doing on behalf of our members with their money. That, that's, that's an aside. Um, if I look to my role as an asset manager on, on say what I put, uh, then we very clearly have committed to being net zero by 2030. But actually to take Peter's point, it's not what happens in 2030 or 2029 or 2028, it's what we're doing now. So we've got a 50% reduction by 2025. And then we've got very specific targets for each of the years leading us to that. And you know, it, this piece about net zero across all asset classes, in many ways, property is one that you can focus on very quickly. Uh, and the quality of your buildings and the quality of the facilities that you're given to the tenants, there's a very clear business case into it. 
that you know you save on energy, you save on water, you save on electricity, but you build really good buildings. You build buildings that tenants are happy to pay top dollar for, that they're happy to roll over on a constant basis uh, on lease renewals. There, it pays for itself. It has a business case on its own. It's not just doing good for the sake of doing good. So for net zero for me as a, an asset owner, uh, it is about everything that we do in terms of getting real traction into that now, not out in 2050. It's just that's so far away that we won't be here. Uh, um, 2030, I do hope to be here. And 2025, I certainly hope to, that we would have made a difference within it. In terms of the trustee side, uh, um, it is challenging. And I think trustees are on a journey. And I think trustees in many cases are still early on in that journey. Um, but the, the thing is that you've got to be in a position to challenge the asset managers who are managing the money on your behalf, ask all the questions, understand. The regulatory side in terms of SFDR is driving more and more reporting and reporting compliance, but the trick is getting in behind that. What are people actually doing on the ground? And, and I go back to saying as, as a private citizen, yes, I want to see things happening in terms of the environment. And if we pick environment just as the first part of ESG, um, I've recently started misquoting the, my, my fellow Wexford man, John F. Kennedy, right? And John F. Kennedy in this context might have said, ask not what your pension fund is doing for the environment, ask what the environment is doing to your pension fund. And that for me brings it back to being about risk management. Great, Jen, thanks. And Caddy, what does it mean for you um, in terms of that journey to net zero? Yeah, I, they're very interesting points, I think, that Jim made. And I think, uh, you know, what I take from that really is transparency, right, and clarity of what, in fact, the impact of your actions are. Um, I suppose for all pension funds, you know, climate change really poses a major systemic risk, um, both financial and, and physical, I suppose, for all for users and, and also for all end investors. Um, but imposes opportunities as well as risk. So I take Jim's point that risk is, is clearly a, a key a key determinant of this, but I think the opportunity side needs to also be considered. Um, what's interesting, I think, as well, is that from, uh, you know, certainly, as I mentioned, the, the Glasgow Financial Alliance, through the through the subsector and industry alignments, so the, you know, the individual subsectors of, of the Glasgow Financial Alliance being the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance, Net Zero Asset Manager, Net Zero Consultant, Insurance Bank, etc., are all agreeing what the pathway is for that particular sector. And this is this is the key part of it. I think that there is agreement among those sub-industries of what in fact it means to be net zero and what is the best way to get there so that the methodology and approaches are, are coherent and consistent so that uh, investors can very well evaluate, you know, how they speak with their consultants and their asset managers, and understand, I suppose, the disclosures that that, that are coming out and that and that they're comparable. Um, I think also it's, you know, certainly interesting to see from the UK perspective. We've already had a, they're quite ahead, I suppose, in a number of ways, in that they've already set climate risk assessment and what TCFD, so the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosure Report as being a requirement for pension funds of, of a certain size. Um, so I think we've already got something like 800 billion of, of UK pensions that are in fact aligned now or have climate goals. 
Um, I think something like 67% of the pension schemes have already set net zero commitments. Um, but, and I suppose in addition to that, from a European perspective, um, clearly the, the EU legislation under SFDR, the EU taxonomy, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive also helped to, to furnish those reports and, and help furnish that transparency. Um, but ultimately, I suppose, with regard to how, how we set targets and we align ourselves with net zero, you know, there are a number of steps we have to take. And eventually, the money really has to flow to two areas. One, it has to flow towards solution design. And secondly, towards uh, investments which are aligned with this transition in a way that is, that is orderly. Uh, so ideally, not in a disorderly way. And just to give you maybe a, a bit of an idea on in terms of island's own journey. So we probably started our own uh, net zero journey, you know, maybe 12 months ago or so, where we set decarbonization as our priority topic. And then within that, we recognize that, as Jim says, in fact, the first point we needed to do was to assess our climate risk assessment capabilities and formalize it both in terms of uh, our standard risk framework, but also in terms of our governance and ownership of that. Um, that, of course, we, we were able to disclose in our, in our TCFD report, which we did for the first time this year. Um, and that's, you know, hope that sets the baseline and it enables us, I suppose, to do a number of things to, one, set our own climate targets and goals within our own company, not just at a portfolio level, which we've been doing for some time, but also on, a, on an entity wide level. But more importantly, maybe is to have conversations with our clients and our pension our pension fund clients to, to understand what their climate goals are and to discuss with them how the climate alignment of their current fund is and understand what their targets are in order to align that better with, with the climate goals they have. Um, so what I would say is that really net zero requires a, you know, a model change. It requires you to consider how you, you know, uh, take climate change and climate risk into consideration in all the investment decisions that you make you know, for a pension fund at strategic asset allocation level, as well as how you interact with your asset managers and your consultants on the topic. Thanks, Gary. And, and Peter, just coming back to you, I guess, on some of the sort of practical issues. So what are the types of steps you have taken to date in, in starting that journey to net zero? And what kind of steps do you see yourself taking in the future? Yeah, I'm coming back to what Jim said here related to uh, rewrite of Kennedy. Uh, what we have been using a lot of time on is to actually assess the climate risk on our portfolio. Uh, we own directly, indirectly and investors around 100,000 properties around the world for our clients. And we have now uh, set a, a system where we, uh, we measure nine different uh, climate risks um, for each and every property we have using big data and, and both proprietary data, but also data that we buy in. So every building we own now is, is assessed through this lens so that we not only have a, a view on how do we get to net zero, but also all the assets we own now, how are they exposed to climate risk? Uh, and that is, of course, uh, the other side of the, the coin here. One thing is to get to climate neutral. We have to remember why we're doing this. And, and of course, until we get that done, there's a huge risk in our portfolios that we need to be on top of. Um, and secondly, we are also working now with uh, biodiversity risk uh, and see how that influences our portfolios. And um, in real estate, it may be more intuitive that, that, you know, as our buildings are getting more green, we set targets for getting green buildings. Great. 
uh, as we do that, more birds like the buildings because they're green and they start to fly into them. And, and I'm sure everybody has seen the statistics here, but about 1.2 billion birds are killed every year by buildings. So what we've been working on with our architects is to set standards for how do you put lights on the buildings to prevent birds from flying into the windows? Um, how do you uh, work with, with how the green surface is, is capturing less birds, et cetera? And so I think climate risk is one, but we're moving more and more into biodiversity risk as the next topic that we need to assess our portfolios at. So, so that's taking up a, a tremendous part of, of our time these days. Okay, and, and I think you highlighted there some of the kind of practical issues and particularly in getting balance. Um, and we do have a question in which was asking how you can achieve net zero for a property fund given the effect on the environment of the manufacture of the basic materials, con concrete, etc. Jim, do you want to take that one? Yeah, it, it's much easier if you're starting with a new build. Uh, because in terms of the way in which you can approach it now, I mean, you really can optimize and minimize the, the, the carbon footprint within that. Older buildings are more difficult because of the, the embedded damage that has been done in that sense. But what you've got to do is just simply look across your entire portfolio. What are the buildings that you can optimize? What are the buildings that you might retrofit? And what are the buildings that actually you're probably better starting with a much uh, cleaner slate, if you like, uh, and redevelopment? And typical kind of commercial property goes through a life cycle anyway. It doesn't remain forever. Uh, so, you know, what proportion of your portfolio are you greening? Uh, um, and within IPUT, we've set an internal uh, fund uh, where, you know, as Peter says, you measure all of the metrics in relation to the buildings that you have. And over time, you reposition all of those buildings. Uh, um, and it's part of your normal renewal cycle. Uh, and there'll be some buildings that you know are capable of uh, very quick retrofitting and there are others where actually you just do it as part of the normal cycle it does add to to your costs uh, but in our experience it also allows you to deliver top quality buildings at top quality rental income and ultimately the shareholders get the benefit of that but also the occupants the tenants the staff of those buildings and you can see it around Dublin. I mean, there are some really top quality buildings been, been built in the last five years or so. Challenges probably on, on just the scale of, of what needs to be done on the, for some some portfolios, not, not in ours. Okay, um, one of the things I think you've all touched on as you were speaking is the kind of role of regulation. Um, how, how much of a driver is that for how you look at this? Um, uh, is regulation driving it? Is it catching up? Where, where do you see that? And uh, Peter, do you want to take that first? Yeah, I think the, the big regulation that has hit our industry the last year here is the SFDR and the way we classify our funds now. And of course, um, if pharma, where I also have a small role, have been playing a pivotal role to, to help us set standards. We are still waiting for the level two. And I think different countries are also uh, because of the lack of, of clarity, have implemented minimum standards for the classifications, and they are not always the same. So there are big differences between the countries, uh, which makes it uh, maybe not a level playing field that we, as we would like. So I think that's sort of the regulatory uh, clarity that we are waiting for. That said, uh, we, um, we classified here in the Netherlands uh, all our assets as Article 8, because as I mentioned, sustainability has been embedded in our investment process for years. So, so for me, it has been quite easy. You know, everything is, is there. 
we have not uh, provided any assets in Article 9 because we do not see sustainability prevail and go in front of the other aspects, so risk, return, and cost that we also look at. Uh, and I, I think that's that's also what some regulators have been challenging the industry that have classified their products in Article 9. They have had a really serious discussion with the regulators to really put forward. Um, so uh, I, I think that, of course, this classification mechanism, you can have your, your ideas on it. But overall, I think the intentions are good. And I, I think it has put a lot of uh, emphasis for asset managers to really secure that uh, they can put more products into this space, which there is a high demand for. I think it is very much demand driven, like, you know, uh, ever before. In the past, it was not so much that. It was more some institutional investors driving this. Now it's actually a lot of clients are requesting this. And this system will give them the ability to um, to hopefully at least to, to buy the right stuff and for regulators to, uh, to set standards that we all understand and also follow up on the greenwashing that I think has been highlighted as a, as a risk that we, uh, that we should be aware of. And uh, I noticed the question in the comments related to the, um, to the value chain. And, and of course, uh, you know, um, the real estate industry, the transport industry, uh, and the cement industry, and you know, big, big will play their role in in our way to net zero. And it's not that we can just look at one sector; we need to look at all sectors. And that what we do in our engagement work is, of course, not only look at the companies themselves, but also ask the companies, how do you look at your value chain? What are you doing to influence your vendors? So, and I, and I think that the answer to the question is that this is the combined effort of engagement. Um, investing uh, through the lens of sustainability and following up and re and reporting on uh, on carbon footprint and i think that what we measure becomes important and, and i think that all these elements are um, part of the the total picture okay and Caddy, how do you see the role of regulation in terms of what you do yeah jerry i mean it's been absolutely critical this year i'm you know I suppose I certainly think it was a, an excellent innovation from the from the European Commission to take it on in the way that they did. And I think to create the architecture as they did, where, you know, last March it focused everybody's mind in terms of how you would disclose uh, your sustainability characteristics under the funds that, particularly the funds that you claim to be uh, sustainable. But secondly, as we now go into a phase where we're rolling out, you know, the taxonomy and further corporate sustainability uh, reporting requirements, which will really provide that bottom-up detail and granularity to the reporting obligations that we already have as financial institutions, is really, uh, I think it's very well designed and it was definitely very required. Um, you know, what, what could easily destroy this would be uh, would be greenwashing and it's, it's not good for anybody, for those who are, you know, for those who are, are trying to make sustainable, you know, sustainable part of their, part of their corporate purpose and um, I think for for all those who are really trying to ensure that this transition happens very very clearly it's it's very important that investors can have the trust really that the, the green claims that are made can be backed and evidenced so I think this this regulation you know the regulatory changes have been excellent and I suppose considering net zero which is you know very rapidly now coming on the heels of the the regulatory changes we've seen in 2020 and are rolling out under the european sustainable finance regulation at the moment you know it was very interesting to hear again during cop that rishi sunak suggested that all corporations private and public would have to set a net zero target um 
under UK law, and that this would be audited by a net zero expert committee. So again, there's a level of oversight and audit to, to give some integrity to these, to these claims and gives, to give investors some confidence, I think, in, in this transition. Okay, and Jim, from a, I guess from the asset owner perspective, how do you see regulation? Yeah, I think that a lot of the regulation that's been spoken about there is focused on the asset manager side. Uh, and on the reporting and on the classification. Uh, on, on the asset owner side, and particularly for pension funds, I mean, huge step change in the regulation as well in terms of the recently transposed IR2 uh, directive. Uh, however, the ESG or the sustainability part of IR2 in relation to pension funds is actually quite minor and is probably a little bit disappointingly minor in terms of its emphasis or its requirement to uh, you know, show that the trustees have considered ESG in, in assessing their investment side. Uh, frankly, the IR2 has such a range of uh, um, policy requirements, uh, changes to standards, that most trustees are very heavily focused on IR2, but within that, the ESG piece is probably you know, something that will have to develop more uh, than, than what it currently is. So to an extent, we'll be relying on the SFTR and the TCFD and those other types of regulatory, regula regulatory changes rather than what's specifically addressed to pension funds. But it is, I mean, it's driving change. That, that's, that's the size of it across the board. Uh, you've had early adopters, uh, you've had people who might not have been so convinced, but uh, like it or not, at this point, there is a requirement to uh, get on board. Uh, I'd like to see people on board, but not maybe so reluctantly that it's only the regulation that's driving them to to make some changes to the way in which the monies are invested. Okay, and that kind of brings us on to topic, which I think is sort of covered in the uh, question that's just come in as well. Is you know, do you see um, any conflict between responsible investment and your role, uh, your kind of fiduciary duty as a trustee? I can give you a very short answer, or I can give you a very long answer. I suspect you probably need both. Uh, the short one is no, I don't. Uh, um, my fiduciary responsibility is my job. My job is to take money on behalf of people, mind it, invest it, and give it back to them over time, and to keep the promise that, that the sponsor has made or within the trustee rules. Uh, and you know it, this thing has been debated at, at quite a length in terms of the fiduciary responsibility of trustees, and is it their job to save the world if, if you focus on the environmental side? And and I'm I'm very clear on that. You know it's not my job as a trustee to save the world. I said earlier as a private citizen, I'm very concerned about that. As a trustee, I'm concerned about the money that I have to invest, the return that I generate on that return on that money, and the risks that I'm taking with that money. Uh, and for me, and you know, I've, I've heard it said, failure to include ESG in your considerations is a failure of your fiduciary responsibility. It is you, you've got to look at all factors, not just the narrowly financial ones that might traditionally have been looked at. And it's it's back to my earlier misquote of JFK that it's what is going to happen out into the future in terms of climate change, environmental assessment the impact on the pension fund on the investments is potentially very risky. Uh, you know, are stocks properly valued 
when you take account of stranded assets, when you take account of increased regulation, when you take account of the increased costs of compliance, uh, have you got reputational damage within the portfolio that you've got? Governance is probably clearer in terms of, you know, for long held and, and proven that good governance produces good results, better results, bad governance absolutely produces bad results. So maybe I'm a broken record, but I keep coming back to saying my fiduciary responsibility is to get risk adjusted returns. If I don't understand the risk, if I think that there are increased risks there beyond the capability of the scheme to hold it, then I shouldn't be invested in those things. Uh, and, and I'm very comfortable around being able to align responsible investment with the fiduciary's fiduciary uh, role. I think for me, in the last couple of years, there's been greater clarity in terms of some of the labeling. And that's why I like responsible investment. If you go back a number of years to ethical or faith-based or impact investing, a lot of those things for me are closer to philanthropy. You know, as a pension fund, you have to invest the money. And I, and I love having the debate with trustees sometimes about, you know, where they will say, it's all about the money. You know, to hell with all that stuff. This is all about the money. But you can very quickly challenge that and say, well, is it all about the money at any cost? And most rational, reasonable people will accept that you shouldn't be doing damage. You still want to earn a reasonable return without doing damage. So you can get people along a journey from it's all about the money to at the other end of the spectrum. I don't really care about the return. I just want to do good. Now, that to me is just philanthropy. So that's not what the space we're in. You have money to give away, give it away. But in the middle, then you move from it's all about the money. It's about the money and don't do any harm. It's about the money and make sure that you understand the risks you're taking. And maybe it's about the money and do some good, but you still have to understand the risks. So, sorry, there's the long answer on top of the short one. Um, okay. I think it's, it's well debated uh, um, across the globe at this stage. Uh, the other thing for me in the last couple of years is that the quality of the data and the accessibility of data to show, you know, the returns that you're getting. I think go back five or 10 years when you were dealing with more with, say, impact investing or ethical investing, um, there was lots of data that showed there was, a, there was a price penalty that you weren't going to get the return. Now, I think it's exactly the opposite because you're measuring a different thing. You're measuring responsible investment where the risks are taken into account. And you know, the metadata is, is much more accessible, I think, that shows that actually uh, there isn't necessarily a price penalty, and in some cases there may be a premium. Final thing I'd say on it is, uh, you know, a lot of the IORP2 is driving trustees to look at their policies, look at their um, procedures in this space. And what I'd be saying to trustees is you're not doing this because of IORP2, or you're not doing this because it's topical. You should never have a policy or process because simply it's topical. It's because it's the right thing to do, or it's because you need to be clear on what you're doing with the money that you're holding on behalf of somebody else. I, 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 get, I get worked up sometimes about uh, asset managers talking about all the money that they have. They don't own it. Trustees don't own it. The members of the scheme own it. Great. Um, Peter, would you have a similar view on that sort of balance between 
these three juicy and get a um, return. Again, trying not to uh, to repeat the story here, but I, I do want to add that there are certain minimum levels, right? And for our different clients, um, the exclusion of tobacco companies is one, and the exclusion of nuclear uh, harmful weapon is another. So I, I do admit that that there are certain uh, uh, trade-offs between um, the ambitions here, but there are also a certain minimum level. Uh, that said, I think the tricky part is where sustainability or responsible investment meets risk, return, and cost. And and there, at least our our view is that it can it can contribute to all three actually. So uh, if you if you are responsibly investing, it will probably mean that you have lower costs um, because you are more uh, uh, you know careful with resources. So there is a an intuitive cost saving in this. Um, the companies that are leaning forward into more responsible investing uh, are also technologically driven um, and they will probably find a better way to do what they do compared to the competitors. So, and that will give you a higher return. And of course, the intuitive, uh, you see the, the environment, uh, the climate risk we talked about, uh, is an important driver of the risks going forward. So in a re return risk objective, if you do not take climate risk uh, and governance risk and other types of ESG risk into consideration, you're missing very important elements in your assessment of investments. So, so that's the addition I wanted to, to add to what Jim already pointed out here. Uh, so again, it was a bit of old school to say, is, uh, so what's the trade-off between sustainable investing and returns? And, and I, I think that is uh, just outright wrong way of looking at it. Um, admittedly, um, the lower limits that we need to have for, you know, the exclusion of tobacco companies I mentioned might, you know, exclude certain returns for sure. Um, but those minimum standards are set by our pension fund clients, and, and I think rightly so. And the same thing with nuclear weapon. Um, but but the uh, the most important part are the, the companies where you can influence them through engagement. And there, of course, um, a lot of the, the, the question marks or critique maybe even on engagement is uh, when, when clients and, and others are saying, so, but how long, how long is, is, is enough before the engagement activity apparently didn't work, before you exclude a company? And, uh, and we try here at least to set very clear ambitions with our engagement work, uh, linking it to the, uh, the uh, ESG lens. So what are we trying to achieve here? But also setting parameters on, on how long should it take, uh, and 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 again, if if the companies are not able to meet the criterias, then having a very you know thorough analysis of other 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 elements that should be taken into account. Otherwise, we will yeah, divest. And and the ambition here is of course that if the engagement work doesn't work and we divest, you could say you lose influence, and that is a valid argument. Uh, that you have to take into account that you, you have more influence if you stay as an investor. On the other hand, the way you do influence an industry is that you bring up the cost of capital for those companies that you divest from if enough investors are doing it. Admittedly, that will take time, but that is the dynamics that we are trying to achieve here, uh, that it's painful not to follow the engagement um, uh, ambitions that we have set together with, with some of these companies. But I'll stop there. <laughs> Okay, and um, we've got kind of five, six minutes left. So if you do have questions, you could send them in. And um, sorry, Kathy, what's your feeling on this area? Yeah, 
I was just going to jump in there because, you know, I think uh, both uh, Jim and Peter made really valid points. And the, I, I think one other one other aspect to consider, I suppose, in terms of in terms of how investments are considered. So we certainly see ESG and that information set as being critical to the investment decisions that we make and, and very additive. And you know, one consideration is with regard to the majority of funds orientate around standard market capitalized benchmarks. These benchmarks are really very backward looking. Um, if you want to future proof your portfolio, and if you want to ensure that you are aligning your investments with future flows that you may need to draw down on for your pension fund beneficiaries, other, other uh, stakeholders, then you definitely need to consider more of a future perspective. And I think ESG, certainly in our consideration, it, it brings a future perspective. Um, so whether it's it's climate or other factors that you are integrating, it does help to understand what the orientation of that company is. And to a great extent, it has been a very good proxy for good governance. Um, and as Peter says, companies that are governed well, uh, consider their wider stakeholders also seem to be performing better you know, from, from the meta studies we've had. And it certainly seems to be yeah, proving a, a really important information set. Jerry, if I might just build on that, um, one of the things that what Cathy said just brings to mind is that historically, I suppose, trustees would have looked at uh, ESG and sustainability in relation to their equity portfolios. Uh, now, I think they absolutely need to move across all asset classes. But even within the equity portfolios, people would have looked at you know passive indices and said, well, what can I do? Uh, the reality today is that there is no end of opportunities to have bespoke indices to get exactly what you want, even in a passive portfolio. In, a, in a, an active portfolio with an active manager, uh, I do strongly believe that um, exclusions have a part to play. Uh, and for trustees, they're often the entry point. They're often an easy to grasp piece that says, yes, we fundamentally do not want to be invested in. Uh, nuclear or in tobacco, as, as Peter said, and I have schemes where that is a, is a bottom line. Uh, sometimes I find uh, asset managers push back a bit on that, uh, and I think that's because it limits their universe, that they don't really want to have their hands even tied that little bit. But as, you know, as a trustee, if you're clear on what you want, if you're clear on where your money wants to be invested, exclusions have a part, and then engagement absolutely has a big part. But don't rule out exclusions, you know, as, as a for starters. It, to me, it's it's a good entry point, and then you can take trustees on the journey uh, through act, active and passive uh, um, in type in equities, but also under every single other asset class. Okay, and uh, just got a few minutes left, so I might um, sort of finish off uh, subject to whether we get any more audience questions in on a, a, a sort of bigger question. Um, you know, we did say this is about the future European pensions. So how do you see this tying in with future European pensions? And Peter, do you want to go first on that? Yeah, I think we adjusted this start. And uh, when I talk about this to our clients and, and my colleagues and, and also the young people who joins us, I say that you're so fortunate you are part of the sort of our times industrial revolution. Uh, so this is this is a great time for innovation, a great time for investors to to make uh, great investors for for, uh, for our clients. So, so I really think that that, that is uh, the positive spin, uh, you may call it, but nevertheless, very, very exciting. And of course, um, 
it is somewhat frightening to see um, the clock is ticking, and in particular when it comes to biodiversity uh, risks, which is uh, very red, right? Even worse than climate risk, I believe. So, so there are huge problems with this planet that that you can get nightmares about. Um, so, so that's that's one way to uh, to look at it. I look at it from the other angle. I, I do think that we as investors and as at whatever part of the value chain we represent, with money we can drive the um, the innovations and we can secure that enough time and smart money are being used on solving the problems. And that's why our industry is so important because uh, it requires a lot of money to do this transformation. Um, and politicians, of course, can set targets and goals, et cetera, but they, they for sure understand that we need to be with them and to, to help this transition to happen. So, uh, so, so I, I, uh, I felt that our industry has always been super exciting to work in, um, but during the last decade or so, it has also become much more of a purpose industry, if that makes sense. Uh, whereas in the past, it was very much sort of, you know, people with money, uh, very dry, making returns, and then you get your pension. Whereas the purpose-driven part of our industry now uh, makes it possible for us to attract a lot more talent that really wants to do this. So, and I, and I think that that's that what's keep me going here, at least that I see that we are able to uh, revitalize our investment engines and, and work with that. Um, so I'm quite positive, even though I'm also scared. <laughs> okay, Kathy. Uh, I mean, I, I would certainly say, I think in terms of uh, pension uh, assets and pension asset management, you know, there's obviously lots of changes coming down the line from, you know, IORPS and, and so forth, all the other regulations that are, you know, both sustainable and non-sustainable. But I would say for pension fund um, managers that it's a, it's a very interesting time for you to have engaged conversation, not only with, you know, the, your supply chain, so with the consultants and with the asset managers that you're dealing with, as well as your beneficiaries. And I think having conversations around sustainable issues, you know, can be quite charged conversations, but I think you, I think when they're managed well, they also lead to very constructive outputs and, and better understanding really of, of what the objective of the scheme is. Um, so what, what I would say really to pension managers, you know, maybe four things, certainly, you know, consider sustainable and climate risks in your strategies, have those conversations with your asset managers and consultants you know, ensure that it's being considered and that you consider it um, in terms of how, you, how you're looking to the, the future flows of the pension fund. But probably, you know, secondly, is a very important one, you know, you use that voice that you have. So being asset owners, you have a voice and really to a great extent, asset owners are driving this whole agenda. So using the, the investments that you have both to engage and to vote on the holdings that you have to, you know, show the voice you have and the direction that you would like to see you know, those businesses take, at, at, you know, at, at least on a high level and on a thematic level, that the areas that you think are really important and maybe the, the areas that also you think are ineligible, as Peter talks about, you know, ones where, you know, there's a clear, there's a clear line of, uh, of no-go. Um, obviously, invest in the solutions. I think this is really important. That's future-proofing, I would say, in, in, in my perspective. So it's really important for longer-term asset holders. And, and undoubtedly, last one is engage with policymakers and these wider initiatives where, you know, other pension fund managers are, are joining these initiatives and are creating pathways and clear frameworks that are really useful, I think, for each pension fund to understand how, what's the best way to do it, how to go about it and how to, inter how to implement it. Great. And Jim, do you want to have the final words? 
but firstly, all of the above, I suppose, not much left. What I would say, Jerry, is I think it is a great opportunity for members to get engaged in a way that might not have happened in the past, and particularly for defined contribution members, because it's very personal. It is their own individual pot that has been managed. And look, pension funds are the, the absolute long-term investor. We're taking a 50, 60-year horizon, perhaps. Uh, uh, and you know, while we may not be here in 50 years' time, uh, hopefully the results of the decisions that we've taken uh, will have a positive impact on it. So I think for trustees, you have to start with education, understanding, getting to grips with what is this. And then really the first point is understand what you're invested in at the moment. Uh, really understand where is the money. Uh, you know, follow the money in the classic sense. Follow the money, understand where it is, understand what your current managers are, are offering, but what other managers are offering as well, and get in behind it. Um, but it is it has a lot of positive uh, aspects to it. That's great, thanks. And um, Pat Lardner is going to join us now and wrap up. Um, but before that, I'd just like to say thanks to Cathy, Jim, and Peter, um, both for today and for the prep you did for this. Um, I know you're going to be brought to survey when the event finishes, so we would ask people to uh, take part in that. And um, I'll hand over to Pat. Thanks very much, Jerry and, and panel. So listen, again, I'd echo, it was a really, really good discussion. I think what we saw there was the power of having both Irish and European perspectives on common problems and common challenges come together. And I think the fact that, you know, we're all singing very much off the same hymn sheet in terms of what we have to do is good. I think, you know, Jerry, just to thank you and IEPF, I think it is great to collaborate because as I said, we're looking at a lot of these common issues and we know that you know, activating Europe's pension funds to support the transition to a sustainable climate is essential. We know that, you know, about 37% of all European household assets are held in deposits. We know that coverage rates around pensions are not sufficient enough. And we know that policymakers, both through, you know, the retail investment strategy, through uh, the Green Deal, uh, obviously as well through just everything that we've talked about on this particular webinar, need to activate that capital. I would say as well that you know we're very happy to make available to uh, both obviously our own members but to IAPF members some of the work that we've done on principal adverse impact and some of the challenges that exist there around even the data provision that's coming through from vendors. So I think the more that we can continue to have a joint conversation on what is a shared problem is really, really important. And I think that last question that you just highlighted there about the future of European pensions, um, FAMA are actually holding a webinar on the 2nd of December between 2 and 4 Irish time on the future of DC pensions in Europe. So we'll make sure as well in sending out information afterwards that that detail is available. It's free to register and free to attend. And I know that, Jerry, you know, the work that IEPF does through Pensions Europe and indeed the work that we do in association with FAMA and our own Brussels representation is really important. So just by way of close, thank you all very much for attending. Thanks again to our panelists. I think it's been a really, really good collaboration on an important topic that we will be talking about for a long time to come. And it's really important that we keep this conversation as vibrant and as open and as engaged as it was today. So thank you all very much and good afternoon.